There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Ice fishermen are free, Ed. For nine months of the year, they're free. It's called open water. Um, I'd say at least half the stuff I'm making is just going to people decorating cabins or lake houses and things like that. He recently said that cutthroat were the prettiest, and everybody was like, you need to catch a native brook trout, my friend. (laughs) Get out of here with that noise. Go find a shed, Mark Kenyon. Joe, you sweet summer child. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning, Degenerate Anglers, and welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that's getting its side hustle on selling mouse pads featuring sunrise and sunset photos we took on our skunk days. I'm Joe Cermelli. <laughs> I know that feeling, man. Yeah, and, uh, and I'm Hayden Samak, and I'm here to tell you that these are uh, these are exceptional mouse pads. And, you know, <laughs> k- kidding aside, as a former hawker of my creative wares, like, uh, a $3 mouse pad is one thing, but if you're selling something expensive, right, there is nothing more just blood boiling than when an influencer is like, hey, you know that stuff that you worked like real hard on and is like really like <laughs> valuable in that way? Yeah, if you give me that for free, I'll shout you out to my 400 followers on Instagram. I hate that. Yeah, yeah, and that that does happen a lot, right? And look, that's not to say that we don't absolutely love it when we get something sent by a listener. Like, we, true, we love true. that. <laughs> um, but to actively solicit that sort of thing um, it's just kind of lame. And that's, that's another Super way of lame. saying for the record, just so you guys know, uh, if you ever see me or Hayden post something from a listener that somebody made, we did not ask for it. You know what I mean? Like, it's cool. We have some cool people out there who are like, yeah. Hey, I make this. I'd love for you guys to check this out. And if it's something that we can use or that's cool, we're, we're always happy to do that. And we will shout you out, but we certainly don't, uh, seek, you know, makers out and, and ask for this stuff. Yeah. Um, can, can I have that sweet decoy? We'll get to that later, man. Uh, I own yeah. a couple decoys and I bought them. <laughs> but that said, I can tell you uh, truth from the bottom of my heart. Throughout my entire career, 
I have always tried to use my platforms, whatever I had going on, whether it was a, you know, in a magazine story or gear roundup or podcast or whatever, to give exposure to the little guys when I could and when appropriate. Um, you know, to, I have such a soft spot for, for, for people making really good, unique stuff in garages and basements and small operations all over out there. I love that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we both like share that similar outlook on uh, the bespoke, if you will, bespoke, bespoke, whatever. Uh, <laughs> and and as much as like I would like to buy all your cool plugs, rods, flies, and whatever <laughs> else you make, uh, our seemingly limitless outdoor podcast host money uh, only goes so far. Uh, and Joe, I think you see exactly where I'm going with this. Yeah, you're going to Wendy's tonight because that's what you can afford. Uh, no, I, I see where you're going, and I... I only eat elk liver, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I think what you're getting at is we love our sponsors at 13 Fishing, right? Because you got to talk no, about the big I mean, dogs, I mean, too. we do. We do. That, that is true. I, we love our sponsors in 13 Fishing, but that's not where I'm going with it. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm, we're going to shout them out a little later, as we always do. Um, but the folks we want to shout out right now... Are you guys listening, specifically those of you that have combined your creativity and skill with a love of fishing and have found a way to make a business out of it? That is correct. Uh, after a hugely positive response to our, like, should we, shouldn't we question last mm. week, uh, we are starting a new segment called Makers, where we highlight the folks that, you know, uh, make now, to be clear, we're, we're, we're not talking about showcasing a cool fly you tied or a picture you painted, although we are very, very proud of you. Very, uh, very. But this maker segment is really meant to, uh, to highlight folks who do it at least semi-professionally. So, like, you know, professional Side hustle. Yeah yeah, 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 exactly. Like, maybe it's your main gig, but I, I, I certainly know a lot of people who uh, are teachers during the day and make some badass rods or whatever at night. So that's, that's mm. who we're talking about. Um, and we thought it would just be a great way to help bring you guys up and uh, get your names out there. And there are so many people deserving of, of just a little bit of highlighting here. Um, but as promised, let's highlight what's up with 13 Fishing, because uh, that's how the podcast gets made around here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, we recently uh, just did a staff ice fishing day out here at Meat Eater, yep. and there were 13 fishing rods. As far as the eye could see, there were 15, 13 fishing rods to be specific. Uh, they sent us, what was it? It was the it was little Kalon reels on, I think, the Widowmaker rods. Mm. I, 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 can't, I can't remember exactly which one they were, but everybody looked cool as hell with them. And I am <laughs> in love with those Kalon uh, reels, man. They're so smooth. And to be honest with you, I'm just about over ice here, and, I, and you know, I'm ready to use the Kalon reels on, uh, on the open water. And I'm also ready to talk spring and summer with you, Joe, man. What are you, uh, what are you looking forward to using the most? Uh, shad. Well, I got, first of all, I got shad on the brain. That is always the first mm. significant thing that like really kicks off a fishing season here for me. Yep. Um, and I had a chance to use 13's fate steelhead rods for shad last season. Um, and they, they are perfect for both casting really tiny darts or back trolling, and uh, you know, shad have a lot of similarities to steelhead, particularly that they uh, they they change direction very quickly. So those yeah. long whippy rods and that that ability to sort of absorb those those turns, steelhead rods traditionally have made great um, shad rods, but the sure. fate steelhead are particularly good. Uh, but yes, it is warming up here. I'd say three weeks ish 
Uh, we'll start hearing reports of the first shad around here, and I'll be out there. I have full disclosure. I have never caught one on my first try of the year because it's generally too oh. early. I'm just so itchy yeah. to go. You know, you hear like, "Oh, there were two caught down here," and you're like, "I'm going. I'm, I'm going right now." Uh, but it, it usually takes a week or two. But maybe that trend will uh, be bucked this season. Maybe first time out, I'll get it done. Yeah, I'll tell you what, man. Um, I let's see. I well, number one, I used to do the same thing with salmon all the time. Like up, yeah. On, you hear up, about on, like, one, and you're like, it's on. No, it's not, dude. I would just, I would just start going <laughs> up at the end of August, man. Just you know, to hang out and start getting my uh, my sea legs under me or my salmon river legs, as it were. The uh, the other thing, man, is I think I'm going to be on the East Coast a little bit towards the end of April, May. Oh, Do, well, and are the well, shaggins pl- still be in there? I, I know plenty, that you see them up high. There's plenty to do if there if there's not. But the last few seasons, surprisingly, man, I've had great shad fishing almost up to Memorial Day. So really? late 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 May starts to get a little eh, but like there's other stuff to do. Late April, that's like primo. Can't be a oh, better okay. time well, than late April. My girlfriend and I are planning a, a turkey hunt East Coast tour, so you know I might have to uh, make a little detour. Of um, anyhow, uh, well, look, hey, I hope the early season shad works out for you, and uh, I love everything Thirteen makes, but I happen to know something that they don't make: spearing decoys. Mm, that is a niche market right there. Niche. Niche indeed, <laughs> mostly by uh, mo- mostly by local uh, craftsmen. Yeah, oh, well, makers. Yeah, we, 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 we all see where you're going here, so uh, just go ahead and get there already. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks. So today, in our first ever installment of our Makers series, we're talking to friend of Bent Ryan Ebert to hear about his obsession with spearing through the ice and the decoys he makes to do it. Today, we're doing our tool time salute. It's a real classic. It's handmade bamboo. Well, that's a good looking rod. Yeah, well, this is handmade quality shit we're talking here. (laughs) All right, so joining us today on the Bent Podcast is uh, is my Instagram buddy and decoy carver extraordinaire, Wisconsin's favorite son, uh, Ryan Ebert. Now, Joe, before my tenure uh, here on Bent, you and the beloved uh, Mr. Nolte mentioned Ryan on the podcast because he sent you a decoy. And since he sent me, that, the, he sent me the greatest decoy I've ever gotten. It's a oh, pi- they're unbelievable. It's a, it's a they're pikelope. unbelievable, and that's why he's guest number one. Have you gotten your pikelope yet? I have not gotten a pikelope Because yet, Ryan's but- still trying to decide if you're as cool as me and mine. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since, but since that faithful day, uh, I've been a big fan of his. And while I do not have a pike lobe, Joe, I do have a cutthroat and I do have uh, another like working decoy on the way. Uh, my, my girlfriend caught her first perch through the ice and it was like a big one. So in order to commemorate that, I, I solicited Mr. Ebert for a, uh, for a replica, uh, perch. Nice. Um, I have I, oh, said to Ryan, have I not said that you could actually just carve fish like in lieu of taxidermy? You're good enough to do that, I think, where that that could be another avenue for you. Like we have to explain that like these are not like the uh like gift shop decoys. Like your level mm-hmm. of detail borders on taxidermy. I appreciate that. I, I don't know. I an artist is always his worst critic, so I'm not I don't know if I'm quite at that level, but 
I get that, but I'm telling you they're good. I, dude, I sold my Pikeelope for two grand on eBay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I think I got a commission coming. <laughs> well, in, in, in addition, in addition to his uh, to his decoys, uh, Ryan also does um, like a, like apparel. And in fact, I own yeah. like five of his t-shirts or I, I used to own five of his t-shirts. Realistically, I'm allowed to hang on to one and my girlfriend, uh, she's stolen the other four. Actually, dude, this is a total coincidence. <laughs> no, it's not. He's rolling up his shirt. The you cuts, did that on purpose. Oh, you got the cuts of meat shirt on. Yeah. The pike. Yeah. Yeah. I, I swear. I swear. I did not do that on purpose because we scheduled this very last minute. Uh, anyhow, uh, <laughs> I've been a big fan of his. We have folks at the office who are a big fan of his. Uh, Seth and Chester demanded that I get them both uh, pike spearing hoodies. Anyway, the dude makes a nice shirt, but that's not really what he's here to talk with us about. Joe? What? You want to you want to talk more about the decoys? <laughs> I do. Yeah. So this is our this is our first makers segment. What? Which, by the way, if makers Mark is listening, is that not perfect? If Maker's Mark Whiskey would sponsor the Maker's segment here on Ben. Um, But yeah, it only seemed right to kick this off with you, Ryan, because uh, we've just, you know, again, we have some decoys. We've been following each other on the Instagrams. And I think decoys are are very interesting, right? Because fair to say um, that while they certainly have function, because there's a whole culture of people out there that actually use them for spearing, they're one of the weird things that you can make in the fishing realm that also has a whole other life as sort of collectible, right? And also there are people who just make like make these things that are never meant to get used, unlike yours, that are just like gift shop kitsch. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious to talk about like what, what really separates one from the other. What makes it, is there something that makes a decoy more functional uh, and, and ready for the hard water than a lot of these things you just see people pump out to put at the, at the gift shop? Uh, yeah, everything that goes into it, I mean, makes it more functional from the swim, the type of wood, uh, making sure it's properly sealed. Uh, obviously, the price level kind of determines if a guy's putting it down in the water or putting it on the shelf. Um, I'd say at least half the stuff I'm making is just going to collectors or people decorating cabins or lake houses and things like that. Really? Yeah. Half of what you make, you think, is... At and- least, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I do see a slight sim like there's one similarity, though not quite the same. We see that a lot in striper lures, the guys turning that stuff out here. Mm. Not so much for decor, but I would say 50%, if not more, in some cases are bought to hold on to. Like they're never going to see water. So, I mean, obviously it doesn't bother you is the wrong word because you're you're making money. But I assume you would prefer to see your decoys actually used on the ice. Yeah, I mean, every single decoy I make, even if I know it's like ultra decorative and probably never going to see the water, I'm still making it the same way. I'm using using cedar, I'm sealing it and priming it and uh, using spar urethane well, to clear coat it and making it to swim, even though I know it's probably not going to go in the water. I'm still doing the same process regardless. Well, contributing to uh, that 50% statistic, uh, 50% of the Ryan Ebert uh, decoys that I own or am soon to own uh are are indeed decorative that cut i had to make a cutthroat <laughs> decoy that's yeah. just like wonderful and that that uh that's it's proudly on my uh on my mantle before uh, to- we get and into, i'm not like, knocking that i just want to make sure like yeah like they are art right i'm not saying oh, like it's weird yeah. to have one for decoration my pikeelope is decoration 
But I, before we go on, though, I do think we should explain, just in case you're not familiar with, with, with pike spearing decoys, Ryan, just give us the quick version of what these things actually do. Why do you need this? So yeah, here in Wisconsin, uh, our big thing is sturgeon spearing because we don't really have pike spearing um, here. But Michigan, Minnesota, North Dakota, a whole bunch of uh, ice belt states all have pike spearing. Uh, so in the winter months, go out, take a dark house, whether it's a permanent shack or a pop-up shack. Uh, you cut a big-ass hole in the ice, usually three feet by four feet. Um, and then the decoy is your primary attractant for pike. You know, they're just as you guys know, they're just ultra aggressive predators. Um, so you're, they're generally coming in and either eyeing it up or they're smacking that decoy and biting, chomping down on it. And then you're sitting above with a spear and, and, uh, yeah, that's how you get them. One question that I have is how did you get into making yeah. these decoys? Like what was the genesis of Ryan Ebert, uh, decoy production here? Uh, so about 15 years ago, I got into pike spearing through a good buddy I went to college with. Um, we both went for graphic design, so that's where the kind of the apparel design comes in. Uh, his dad was a, a warden up in Marinette County, Wisconsin, and uh, he was really big into pike spearing and carbon decoys and went up. And um, the very first outing, we didn't even see a pike or didn't have any luck, um, but I was just hooked. You know, it's so different. It's yeah, it's yeah, it's more like probably bow hunting than it is fishing like you're picking a spot i mean you're not bouncing around like with tip-ups or anything you're not covering a big part of the lake you're it's like duck hunting out a chimney i mean you got one little area <laughs> one little area that you're watching and you're hoping they come in and you're just waiting and and it can be boring for hours on end but then all of a sudden that five seconds of a monster pike or any fish coming through you know it gets the heart pumping and and there's no guarantee of connecting either. It's it's not as easy as some guys think. You know, you're not just slaying them. So in a similarity to lures, right, to lure making, like what's in basic terms, what separates, in your opinion, um, an OK decoy from a great decoy? Because, you know, there's to use swim baits as an example, there's five hundred dollars swim baits. There's three dollars swim baits. They're all in one classification of doing the same thing. And, you know, like there are people who are argue me in some cases with predator fish that if he's hungry and interested, like he's going to eat the $5 swim bait or he's going to eat the $500 swim bait. But yet I still recognize that that in terms of action and what they do, there are obviously nuances. So what what, in your opinion, should a decoy do to make it more potent or more attractive than a lesser decoy? What's the difference? Uh, the primary thing is swim. Um, it should should move forward in the water and make a nice slow circle. Uh, there are actually contests and classes and um, shows that are have contests just for that and how the decoy swims in the water. So they'll swim it in a six-foot tank and, and judge it all upon that. Um, from a collector's huh. standpoint, uh, it's all about the name. Um, so certain carvers you know, develop a name or a following, and then that really ups the value of those decoys. Yeah, we did a news story a while ago that somebody unearthed a collection that they had authenticated that, I mean, they were selling at Sotheby's or something like that. I mean, crazy amounts of money for some of the the really old, unique stuff, right? Yeah, I think that was a Peterson decoy, if I remember correctly. Yeah, so obviously, something like that, you yeah. know, carvers that have passed on and, you know, that's a limited supply of decoys. They're not obviously anymore being added out there and they get pretty valuable. So if you go into a tackle shop in Wisconsin or, or wherever spearing happens, are there also sort of stock mass-produced decoys that you would just find next to everything else on the shelves in there? Uh, 
There's some, I mean, yeah, there's some uh, commercial manufacturers uh, here. Again, here in Wisconsin, we don't have pike experience, so you got to pretty much go up to Lake Winnebago and go to any bars or gas stations around there, and you'll see them hanging in there, especially this time of year. The season just wrapped up yesterday, so you'll you'll see right. guys that make them all around the lake. And for sturgeon spearing, they don't care as much about the swim. They're just doing generally larger, brighter, colorful decoys. Sure. Now, I know, um, I know that a lot of these decoys, you know, typically run like you know 50 to 150 bucks you know if, if you're that's trying for to a worker like really nice. a worker decoy is like that range yeah yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah right um i do know an extremely effective uh decoy that you can buy for 99 cents and it comes with uh it, it comes full of coffee uh <laughs> i sent um what yeah i sent chester floyd sturgeon spearing with uh, a friend of yours, I oh John Mertz, John yeah. John Mertz, right? He's Sent out of Minnesota. Decoy. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, he I sent Chester up with a John Mertz decoy, and he wanted to use it, but the hot thing on the lake happened to be styrofoam coffee cups. Ryan, it's probably not styrofoam. It's probably <laughs> ceramic. Yeah, like a regular coffee mug. Yeah, sturgeon guys will throw anything down from. Uh, disco balls, the Barbie cars. I watched a dude put two duck decoy or I think they're geese decoys like back to back wrapped around. I mean, they'll just throw anything. Cause sturgeon are big, curious dinosaurs. So you're just trying to throw stuff at them that they haven't seen before. So they're not always swimming traditional decoys on bagel. That's fascinating. Yeah. But the, but the pike, because it's more of a predatory response, you want those decoys to swim in a very particular way, and, and you want them to be representative of something a pike might have a, I don't know, like a predatory reaction to. Yeah, yeah, generally you want them to swim better, but even those, you you want to mix it, uh, swim styles, ones that are fast or slow. Uh, I make some that are called like wiggle decoys that are finless, and they kind of act like they're dying, they'll the eyelets on the bottom of the belly so when you jig it it kind of does like a belly flip like a yeah. dying shad oh. kinda. yeah kind of like a big old like flutter spoon yeah 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 especially on a slower day you're just kind of throwing different stuff at them until you see what really gets them going so perhaps a dumb question right because i certainly do understand the culture behind this fact i've <laughs> always wanted to, uh, dumb questions on the bent podcast yeah <laughs> I, I i've always wanted to try pike spearing right i've i've never gotten a chance to do that you guys um, got an open know. invite yeah, I should I should take We're you up on next that. Year, Joe. Yeah. Well, I've been I've been wanting to do that for a while. Uh but anyway, does anybody ever, I don't know, use like a live sucker as a decoy with a couple treble hooks in it or maybe put some treble hooks on their decoy? Yeah. Just in case. Every state has different obviously regulations. Um so you can put what's called yeah, a cheater hook on a, a traditional decoy. Um, mm-hmm. And there are guys, especially in Minnesota, they like to li- run a, a live sucker and usually a, a regular decoy, they'll run two down. Um, yeah, again, anything just to see what's getting them going that particular day. Gotcha. Uh, for sturgeon gotcha. spearing, uh, you can't run anything with a hook and I don't think you can use live bait at all. Right, 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 right. Hmm. Well, well, we have, uh, we, we have a couple questions. I think we're, we're aiming to sort of do this for all of our, our makers segments. Cause I think they, I think they work. Um, but the first one would be, who was your inspiration? Like, who did you learn from? Who was the biggest inspiration for your work? Yeah, it's my buddy's dad that got me into it. Um, he's re- a retired warden now. He definitely got me into the whole pike spearing, and I picked his brain starting out, you know, on making decoys. And um, like I said, there's shows uh, that I go to, and I've met other carvers and just 
you know, gotten tips from everybody and everybody's got such unique styles. And is there a particular carver that you go, I would like to maybe not make something identical to that, but I'm, I'm using this dude's process more than others as a particular influence. Uh, not any particular one. There's definitely parts of my process that I can credit to different guys that have told me how to cut fins better or do like the gill details mm-hmm. better. Um, yeah. So it's more of a technical influence than an artistic influence. Is what yeah, definitely. Yeah. I definitely don't try to like copy anybody's style or if they do a particular thing that they're known for, I wouldn't. You're not the best pro shops of the carving world is no, what you're saying. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> Next question uh, that we have for you, man, is have you ever, uh, in your pursuit of pike decoy perfection, have you ever like done an experiment that was just a total and complete disastrous like failure, like something that, except in this context, you wouldn't want anybody to know about? Share that with fifteen thousand people real quick. <laughs> uh, utter failures. No, but I've had stuff that's really just made me pull my hair out. My when I make the full size pike lope, man, those antlers really mess up my whole waiting process and getting it to swim and i'll spend hours oh. hours on one decoy on one full-size pike lope getting it to swim uh paddlefish is the same thing because they got that real long you know nose on them so that really makes the balancing of it super tricky so but you've just brought up something interesting so even if if i'm commissioning you uh to to make a decoy that's going to be purely for decoration purposes and you know that you are still making sure that thing swims if I wanted it to. Absolutely, because if it doesn't swim, if I'm not making it correctly, it's not a fish decoy. That's what separates. That's what that. That's what that's what levels you up right there. <laughs> is even if it's a decoration, it would perform if you needed it yeah, to. Yeah, and I've done some like yeah. fish plaques, you know, putting on mountain on sure. wood. So that's purely decoration, yeah. and and uh, yeah, that's a totally different thing. But yeah, if it's a fish decoy, I'm making it to swim. Like I said, my whole process is the same either way, even if I know it's just going on a shelf. Yeah. You hear that, folks, man? When you're buying a Brian Ebert decoy, <laughs> you're not only getting an artistic representation, you're you're getting dedication to craft. Laying um, on well, thick. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for like coming and talking to us, man. Do you want to uh, you want to tell our listeners where they can find you? Uh, you know, on uh, social media, and then if they would like to buy something from you, where they might find you as well. Yeah, primarily uh, my Instagram is where I'm sharing all my fish decoys and uh, spear and apparel. So that's Ryan Ebert Art. Uh, Etsy is what I sell most of my stuff through, which is also Ryan Ebert Art. Um, also the on the board of directors for the National Fish Decoy Association, and we have a show in Perm, Minnesota. Oh. Uh, that's April 22nd, I think, that weekend. So if guys want to meet me in person, you can come to that show, and I'll have lots of decoys there. Uh, pretty much everything I'm making right now, I'm kind of holding and setting aside for that show. So there's not much on my Etsy shop available right now. Right on, man. Well, we kicked it off with ice decoys. The the, the possibilities are endless, Hayden. Lure makers, rod makers. Who will be next on makers? Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. If you think that you are the next maker, uh, send that we us ought to what talk you to. make. We will assess it and then decide. No, no, no. <laughs> email email us at bent at themeateater dot com with uh with a little bit of paragraph about you and uh and an example of your art and uh, hopefully 
you get to be uh, you get to be on the show soon. What do you think, Joe? Is that an appropriate plug there? Very appropriate. All right, thanks, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. So cool. Uh, I love Ryan. Man. Yeah, Ryan's stuff is is truly outstanding. Um, you should all check him out if you haven't already. And, and while the ice is dwindling, I would say in my region. I know a lot of you still have good ice, uh, and maybe you're not into spearing, but just hate the fact that, you know, ice fishing just allows you to kind of drop a baiter jig straight down. Yeah, I cannot stand that. I, Isn't you just it horrible? Like, <laughs> ah. You just feel like, man, if this water were just open, I could cast anywhere I wanted to. <laughs> eh, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's, that, look. <laughs> well, that trolling thing, man. Uh, sh- don't oh, okay, ruin sorry. it. Don't ruin it, because we've got a sail bin item today. Um, that can help you out uh, if you just hate the fact that ice fishing is kind of a straight up and down thing. And this should be fun because I already know Hayden and I have different opinions about this item. Well, why did you put the head in the paper if you don't know what I'm getting at? Well, you, you didn't have to be so hurtful with me, so angry. This Salbin entry comes to us from listener Isaac Lintz, and it's a, it's a weird one um, because he said he saw this on Facebook Marketplace but he didn't supply a link to the item. And I went on Facebook Marketplace and searched it. I looked for it myself, and I couldn't find it. But um, what Isaac told us was that after seeing it for sale somewhere out there on the uh, interwebs, he, he ended up wanting to dig deeper. And he, he mm. looked this product up, and he, he found it on YouTube, two videos. Uh, and, and that's what he sent was these two links to these, these videos. And the product is called The Bait transporter yeah and now before we start picking this apart let's just like describe this item in 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 the simplest terms yes the bait transporter is it's like a flat wooden like kind of like planer board almost with like a point at one end and below it is a motor and dangling from that is a downrigger release clip 50 feet of cord are connected to the motor (laughs) and what you do is you attach your fishing line uh to the release clip Slid the bait transporter under the ice, power it up, and off it goes, carrying whatever lure or bait you've connected 50 feet from the hole you drilled. (laughs) And once it gets to the end of the cord, it turns and will continuously run in a 50-foot circle around your hole. Right. Now, neither of these videos uh, made it clear, to me at least, if the idea is to take a bait out, right, and then you snap the line out of the release clip and your bait falls or you you effectively troll a spoon or a crankbait or uh, whatever under the ice. That's how they're showing it in action. They show this thing pulling a spoon behind it. My guess is that it will do both. But I have issues with both of those objectives separately, which which we'll get into mm. in just a little bit here. Yeah, so now that we uh, we have a full understanding of what this product is, let's discuss who's selling it. His name is Ed Smith. I'm out here on Lake Superior today. It's a beautiful day. We're just off a little rainbow stream. And I have this new sport fishing device that I'm going to be using today. It's something I invented. It's called a bait transporter. In case you're wondering, yes, all the music in Ed's videos sounds like what was playing when the baby whale is finally born in Blue Planet. It's, I'm pretty sure it's also like the stock music that they... My brother has a drone and he makes these drone videos, and I think that's the same stock music that they give him to make the videos with. It's very strange. Uh, anyhow, uh, Ed seems like a good salt of the earth, dude, but he's also the kind of guy, and I think we all know or know one, that's like a basement tinkerer. Yes. Ed is a... Uh, 
a, a mad scientist, an engineer of sorts. But whereas some folks spend lots of money prototyping, it looks like Ed built his prototype for whatever he already had laying around the garage. Yeah. Much like uh, some prototypes <laughs> I developed in high school. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the, the name, even the name Bait Transporter is crudely burned into the wood plank. I and did it, love that touch. But it tapers at the end. It's like he ran out of room. Like, you know when you're writing some long shit and you're like, oh, mm. I don't have enough room for the E and the R. So, like, bait transporter shrinks away. And, like, it, it's there's yeah. there's barely uh, enough room on there. Now, underneath, the motor that, that moves this device, that provides the thrust, it's just a small fish tank water pump, right? So, basically, it's got, like, a little jet drive going on. And the cord is 50 feet of that thick, clear cord where you can see all the copper wiring inside, mm -hmm. right? And then every few feet, Ed put foam bobbers on the cord, strung bobbers on the cord to ensure that the cord uh, would float underneath the ice instead of sinking away. And all of this glory uh, and power is, uh, is run by a car battery that he has out on the ice with him. Yes. And now, now, so like the case that Ed makes in his video is that uh, despite all the electronics available these modern days, modern ice fishermen still fish like cavemen, <laughs> uh, meaning like they can only drop a lure in like a one foot area, I guess, on like the lake. So I'll let Ed explain what that means. This is a picture I drew of the very first ice fisherman. Yep, he's a caveman. Now over here, I have a picture of today's fisherman. He's got a camp and he's got a four-wheel drive truck and a trailer and ice huts with televisions and stereos. There's, he's got ice tents. He's got fish finders and underwater televisions. He's got snow machines. But if you look here, you'll notice that he is doing the same thing as this guy over here. So that means since the beginning of time, ice fishing has never changed. So if you watch this video, he actually draws a caveman fishing and then compares it to another drawing of modern ice fishing and and they're like something my kids would have drawn. A, a, it's a very it, potent piece it's, of rhetoric. It's very funny. It's very funny. Uh, now, Ed claims that with his device, right, you can fish anywhere within 7,000 square feet of the hole. And his tagline, sort of, like sort of his, his tagline, is that this device sets ice fishermen free. Now, listen, Ed, I do appreciate the thought process and, and the work that went into this. And I'm not saying that there's no ingenuity here, right? It does steer itself in a circle and all that. I mean, there was some thought put into this. But my gut reaction to the idea of, of this, this freeing of the ice fishermen, even before I get into the logistics, are that ice fishermen are free, Ed. For nine months of the year, they're free. It's called open water. Um, I see what he's, he's trying to do here. But isn't part of the skill and, and fun um, uh, of ice fishing uh, about being able to, you know, first off, go wherever you want on the lake on foot, not needing a boat. And then, you know, finding the perfect spot to drill a hole. And you're hoping that you're, you're, you're sitting right on top of the fish. Like that's just kind of what ice fishing is to me. So this, this kind of changes the game. And I don't know if it's positively, but you ice fish more than I do. So I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah. Uh... 
Joe, you sweet summer child. <laughs> um, <laughs> man, I think it's okay. So, is Ed's invention a little hokey? Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but there are things that I like about it, and some of the things that I like about it would be what you might consider a critique of it, except you got to think about it the right way. So that copper line is like really good. Cause my initial thought was like, well, why don't you just take like a remote control? Like I'm sure they have some remote control submarine or like, you know, whatever. And just like, you know, zip it around, uh, underneath the ice with like a crankbait attached to it. And then I realized that, um, steering it back to the hole blindly would be really difficult. So like plus one for the giant copper cord Two, my next critique was, man, isn't that like a lot of stuff, like a car battery? Isn't that like a lot of stuff to like bring out? And then I thought about it for three seconds. I was like, bro, you camp on the ice all the damn time. The amount of crap that you bring out there with you, like you wouldn't even notice the car battery. So I like that. Mm. Um, or it's not that I like that. It's just like, it's a non-issue. It's a moot point. Um, my, other uh, kind of critique is this is basically the ice fishing like equivalent, or I guess the the terminal tackle equivalent of like side scanner compared to your like drop down the hole transducer. You know what I mean? Like it, you're you're basically uh, as a side scanner amplifies your visible area or radar area. The uh, what the what the hell does he call this thing? Bait transporter. Yeah. <laughs> the bait transporter uh, increases your, your your fishable area in a very similar way. Now, here are my, like, here are some actual critiques that I have over it. Like, number one, Ed, golly, man, make the thing look better. Just, just <laughs> put, put some more time in, in, into, like, presentation, man. It, it's fine. Just spray paint the whole thing. And just start over with a nice graphic, man. That'll that'll get you so much further immediately. Next thing I have like a problem with is uh, I'm not sure how fish would react to this underwater from the standpoint that everything's like kind of lethargic. I don't know exactly how fast this goes, but I wonder how effective like in in a a type of fishing that demands such a subtle presentation, how effective that like trolling at whatever speed might be. Mm-hmm. So but, um, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. If, yeah. if Ed were to show up and give you this, would you uh, run out on the ice and, and give her a go? Would you use this product? Would I use this product? Mm-hmm. Well, if somebody out of the kindness of their hearts is going to send me a bait transporter, I would indeed give it a shot. Would I bring it every time? No. But one thing that I immediately kind of thought of was uh, it might be kind of effective to find like kokanee because they're like attracted to like big, shiny, like fluttering things. And I thought that it, you might have some utility there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Like, do I want to go fish with it? No, not really, man. Uh, I, will, I will be honest with you. Not really. But mark my words. I'm going to call it now. In 10 years, inside of 10 years, there will be a product very similar to Ed's bait transporter. And it will be widely used by uh, by ice fishermen. And I think that it will be widely used in combination with the side scan sonar. So there you go. Okay. Those are my thoughts on it. Yeah. All right. So uh, let me uh, crack my neck and crack my knuckles before I begin here. So. Oh, God. Uh, wait. 
that's that's no fair, man. I didn't know you were gonna make me do it all at once, and then you were gonna like roll a rebuttal at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was doing. That's I wanted to bullshit. hear your far, uh, your. I wanted to hear your thoughts first. It is not in the notes that that is how this was gonna work out. I thought I was just offering my thoughts and like. <laughs> Well, you okay, you, go ahead, you, no, ice fish, you, you you ice fish more than I do, so I'm I'm going to bring up some practical things. No, that was great, man. Walk walk me into it blind. Um, <laughs> all right. So for starters, right, the bait transporter has a GoPro attachment on it, facing backwards, uh-huh. which tells me yeah. that the intention is to troll with it. Because why would you need a GoPro if you're not expecting a fish to eat behind it? The first thing that came to mind for me was the sound. This has got to be making all kinds of sound underwater, and you're dragging this cord around. Is that attractive to fish? But more so, unless you're targeting, like you brought up kokanee or or even <laughs> trout. What if it turns out to be like pelagic fishing boats where like some of them are tuned in frequencies that like the fish end up liking and some of them are just like dead. So you have these like bait transporters. I'm not saying it'll never work. but <laughs> This one but, sounds but, really but, good. This but, one doesn't but, work. But what I'm saying is if you think about depth, so if you're going to pull a spoon mm. or a, a jig or crankbait or whatever... Well, that's great if the fish you're trying to target are swimming one to three feet under the ice. As soon as you increase Mm. the depth of the lure, like the deeper you try to send it, the less action it's going to have with that thing moving in a wide circle. Like even though that's moving around, the the deeper you go, the less that's going to translate to to the action that the lure is supposed to have. So I don't really fully understand how that would work. Kind of cool to do with it. Would be like if you had a side scan, right? And, and a lot of this argument contingent is contingent on you having a side scan. But it would be interesting to like drive around, get it over where you think the fish are, and then just like dead stick it. Well, okay, I thought of that too. So let's say you legitimately use this thing to place mm. a bait or something, and you keep consistently getting bit at the eleven o'clock hour on your turn, fifty feet away from well, your you hole. You would think you would wouldn't. Think I it just would pick called, up my like, shit the... and go drill a hole over there. Instead of dealing with wires yeah. and cables and stuff, I mean that could be a good that could be a good way to find it. Because I'll tell you what, in the time that it would take you to drill like those sixty holes to encompass like a fifty foot sixty or three hundred and sixty degree radius, you could just do that in one turn with the handy bait transporter. Okay. Now here's another here's another thing. Let's say they go bait, set up on them. Let's say the bait transporter does its job, and like a twenty yep. pound pike comes over and grabs whatever you're pulling. You're going to fight that fish through a tiny hole with a tiny rod while you're also dealing with 50 feet of cable and a moving object in the same hole? Like, dude, how often have you gotten tangled just in your transducer that's bobbing right there? So I don't see how that doesn't equate to mad tangles, dude. Here's my argument there, man. Um, I would say that, like, the one wire that is going down the hole and immediately banking 90 degrees is less in the way than my like heavy transducer that's like hanging down three feet below like what I'm fishing. Okay. And my last thing was if you're going to use this for bait delivery, like to drop a dead bait further away from you or something, it doesn't move particularly fast. So are you really, is it really more efficient to keep pulling this thing in by hand, dragging all the cord in, setting the release clips, sending it back out, and it goes along real slow. Like, is that more efficient than just drilling more holes in the area to find the fish? I, 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 to me, I, I think if it was not, just, I think if it was just going out and doing one, I would agree with you. I'd be like, yeah, you got to send this thing under. It goes out fifty yards, you know, or fifty feet or whatever it is. But 
because it's like running that circle, I would say that, yeah, that is more efficient. I would say definitely takes less time. Hmm. Well, the only thing I will say, I, I don't agree that this is going to be the next big thing, right? And it's not going to be like side scan because side scan lets you see to the side, which would allow you to move your whole base just on what's on your screen from side scan. But I do think if there was something here, like, you know, we got to get to the, to the uh, you know, to the Tesla and Ed just built the Ford Model A. You know what I mean? Like mm. years and years and years down the line, maybe there's something here that, you know, acts like a, I don't know, a drone that goes one way and then just automatically comes home. I don't know. But I think to make that technology really efficient, uh, it would be a really expensive item. And I don't think your average ice fisherman is going to go for that. I think he's going to go out. Hand auger his holes, jig up his perch, drink some beers, and go home. I don't, I don't see it, but I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, man. Well, the precedent for ice fishing being expensive has already been set. You know, our buddy Jay Siemens out there with those snow bear things, mm -hmm. dropping down like the the six thousand dollar side scan total setup. But that's not the average person, dude. That's not your average guy. And for something to make it, I think, yeah, well, in the market, it has to be affordable, and a lot of people have to want it, right? Like, that's yeah. not, well, you, you know. You know who else is uh, is not the average guy? Our buddy Ed. Well, now, Ed's getting after it. I, I, I give a lot of credit to Ed. It's it's not it's not Ed, but, you know, he's he's created something here that I, I felt was worth debate. Also, um, we know of it because of Isaac. So Isaac, thank you so much for sending this. Thanks, Isaac. Yes, this was a really fun one. We'll put a clip of this product in our uh, Instagram stories today so you guys can check it out. And if you find something fish or fishing related on your favorite online classified that's just ridiculous, uh, please keep sending those links. Send that link to bent at com. Do please write in or hit us up and let us know what you think of the bait transporter. I'd be really curious to hear if you guys think it's a great idea or not. Again, I'm not trying to take anything away from this guy, but come on. It's, it's a lot going on. It's a lot happening. I think you're going to hear that it's genius. Also, <laughs> if you'd like to hear what a winning news report sounds like, stay tuned as I crush Joe <laughs> in this week's installment of Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. Hey, real quick, just because I forgot to mention it uh, last week, as trout season openers approach, uh, some of you guys that have procreated and produced smaller versions of yourself <laughs> may be interested in a in a piece I recently published on the Meat Eater site about taking your little people trout fishing and uh, how to help craft them into better trout anglers specifically. Uh, it was actually a very fun one to write. So that's on the Meat Eater site if, if uh, that does something for you. Yeah, I feel like at Meat Eater, we've been putting out a lot of, like, uh, the child-related content. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I mean, there's a whole book. Steve's got a whole book coming out, yeah. so very much so lately. Um, and it's it, it's a very uh, fun thing to write about if you have the kids. Anyway, uh, last week we mentioned that we'd kick off a little thing uh, in news here called Conservation Minutes uh, at the front of news each week. Mm -hmm. uh, as a recap, we're, we're doing that just because, you know, we have limited time here every, every week with the news, um, and it's hard to cover everything, you know? Yeah, uh, so we just want to keep you, like, kind of posted on what's going on, even if we don't have time to, like, dive into it long term. You know, it would be, like, fun, man, would be a... Uh 
like eventually we could do like a uh, like a daily show thing with like an auxiliary correspondent like a like a like a reporter or something like that maybe down the line i, th- I thought i thought that'd be funny anyway so joe uh you're doing the minutes this week let's uh let's hear what you got yeah yeah a couple things real quick here uh so for the first time since 1990 florida anglers may be able to take a goliath grouper home for dinner a vote will be made by Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission this week on the final version of fishing regulations for Goliath Grouper that was uh, drafted and initially approved in October. We covered that story back then, talking about how many anglers say, hey, look, there's plenty of them out there, so let's do this. And then the scuba industry is saying, yes, but leave them alone because our clients like to look at them. <laughs> um, the, the rules feature a, a highly regulated, limited harvest of these fish. Uh, which can grow over 600 pounds and eight feet in length. That so a, we'll see a what lot happens of there. Man. That's a lot of meat, man. If you're going to kill one, how about a 20 pounder? 600 pounds, that's a bit. Uh, one other thing here. So Bass Pro Shops owner Johnny Morris is reviving the World's Fair of Fishing in Springfield, Missouri this spring. The event will showcase 200 exhibitors representing over 150 manufacturers across boating, fishing, and outdoor gear. Um, there will be more than 500,000 square feet of merchandise, much of it on sale at reduced prices from boats to rods to clothing. Now, the event expects to bring upwards of 300,000 people in mm. over the course of five days, especially with added incentive, though not for me, from acts like Dirk Bentley, Luke Bryan, and Hank Williams Jr. Uh, Hank, Hank Williams Jr., I, I'd watch him. Oh, yeah. I got cursed out by him once. I brought that up what? before. Long story. Anyway, yes. Uh, we don't have time for that right now. Okay. But he 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 called me an MRFer and kicked me off his property. Um, <laughs> anyway, I brought up that story because Morris, uh, who's a big time conservationist, has earmarked fifty percent of the proceeds from all of that, both admissions to the fair and concert tickets for outdoor conservation. So if you're in that neck of the woods and going to that, you are giving back a little bit uh, with that one. There you go. Okay, conservation minutes, man. You know, I hate to make you. Uh, I hate to make you talk so much. Um, and we got. I don't mind. We, we, yeah, I know you don't mind. <laughs> we we got to figure it out uh, a little bit better. Maybe uh, whoever's lead it is uh, the other person reads the conservation minutes. But all that said, Joe, it is your lead today. So you're gonna have to keep. Uh, you're gonna have to keep talking. What do you got for us in uh, this week's fish news? Yeah, don't forget uh, the mighty Phil, our audio engineer, is going to judge mm. this. I don't think Phil should should consider conservation minutes. I think no. the, the battle still has to rage no, on main on stories. <laughs> and listen, ironically, um, like we said with conservation minutes, it's not to say we won't cover bigger stories where appropriate. And I actually have one that's that's very conservation uh, bent this week. As so a few listeners sent this along, and I appreciate it very much. It comes from the website biographic.com. Um, and it covers an initiative to get rid of brook trout in New Mexico. Um, brook trout are found throughout the American West, including in the Rockies, Sierra Nevada, and Cascades. But what some people may not realize is that they are actually invasive there. Now, if you live east of the Mississippi, you know, especially if you grew up uh, in the Northeast where Hayden and I did, this may come as a surprise because brook trout, wild and, and native ones especially, are kind of a big deal out here. Oh yeah, like they're the yeah they're the state well, fish of Pennsylvania well, and New Jersey. We were talking earlier. We were talking earlier, man. Those those are like my favorite things to fish for. Yeah. Oh yeah. Big deal here, and they are arguably the most beautiful trout species. Um. You know. Oh god, uh, man, it's hard to argue rookie. against it. 
Well, I know, although Mark Kenyon just recently did uh, oh, from over there at Mark Wired. Mark Kenyon's caught he, like six fish, man. <laughs> <laughs> and all of them I are hope on he's listening. <laughs> I hope, I, I hope he, he's listening. He recently said that cutthroat were the prettiest, and everybody was like, you need to catch yeah, a stick native to white brook tails, trout, Mark. Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to say, get out of here with that noise. Go find a shed, Mark Kenyon. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, brookies are so intertwined with Eastern culture and prize that it could be hard to imagine them being highly unwanted and actually a real pain in the ass elsewhere. Um, according to the story, which provides a fascinating history lesson, um, just so we understand what's going on, the Mississippi River that's the natural barrier that stopped those fish from 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 getting uh, west, from migrating naturally. And they theoretically could have uh, through the Mississippi, but it's just too warm. So that was like the natural barricade, uh, which means every brook trout west of the Mississippi was planted and planting was rampant oh, during oh, the era. Oh, hold you- on, hold on. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, I'm very interested in your news story. I In the wintertime, like a brook trout couldn't just whoosh, grease across the Mississippi? I mean, I mean, it could, but if you think of um, where a lot of these wild and native brook trout are in comparison to the Mississippi, I mean, you'd be talking about fish swimming from the headwaters in North Carolina and West Virginia and wherever, Oh, all the way down to the big water, all the way to the Ohio River or whatever, oh, all the way okay. through the you Ohio to the Mississippi. <laughs> I had like a, a, a totally like childlike conceptualization of what you were talking about. No, what I'm I I saying this, like, is... little cold water estuary <laughs> going right down to the edge of the Mississippi and another cold I'm... water estuary just right on the other side and the brook trout yeah. is going... Boop. No, 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 no. Sorry. Not, I... That's why I'm saying it's theoretically possible for them to do that. Right, okay. But, um... Last plus, time I interrupted you know, pred- story, sorry, continue. No, 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 no. I mean, plus you got to consider predation. Like, if you're a six-inch brookie swimming through the Mississippi, something is f***ing <laughs> eating you. You know what I mean? Um, anyway, planning was rampant during the era when European settlers were arriving in, in the U.S. in droves. And as they migrated west, you know, they don't know what kind of fish they might find out there. They thought it would be a good idea to take brookies along. They like trout. They know trout. And then as the rail system developed... Um, they, they had special fish cars that were designed just for this transport. And along the route, they would just stop at trackside lakes and rivers and either offload the fish with trucks or just fill milk cans and run them down and dump them. Um, it was it's a really interesting story. It said during this time, during the late 19th century, uh, what was referred to as acclimatization was in vogue. And it means that people back then wrongly believed that introducing a species improved ecological conditions oh, here's, a, here's a quote yeah here's like a quote building from the piece. up like a menagerie of yeah the, it's yeah. like we're gonna make that better right and it's a great quote from the story it says as author kim todd writes in tinkering with eden ponds and lakes rather than being viewed as complex ecosystems were treated as outdoor aquariums waiting to be filled and it says even the sierra club uh which now campaigns against invasive species was involved back then, transplanting large numbers of brook trout and other trout into lakes and streams along its guided routes through the High Sierra so that paying customers could have an authentic wilderness experience. Um, so bottom line, as, as pretty as wild brookies are, uh, they, uh, they're also pretty voracious, and they outcompete native species for food and habitat, which brings us back to this current eradication effort. 
Um, graduate students from the Department of Wildlife and Conservation Ecology have been shocking Leandro Creek in New Mexico in an effort to compare brook trout numbers to native Rio Grande cutthroats, which are one of the most malign trout species um, in the country. Today, the, the Rio Grandes are, are found in only 10% of their historic native range. Mm. And brook, brookies and Rio Grande cutthroats are the only trout that live in this tiny stream. And the team was seeing five brookies for every one cutty when they shocked. However, uh, it's, that's, most... It's not shocking. Yeah, exactly. Right now, <laughs> however, most of the brook trout, good one. Thanks. Most of the brook trout the team captures, they are males. And that's because Leandro is the host of an ongoing experiment using Trojan <laughs> trout. Is that is right? that is that like a is that is that a trout condom? Uh no, I think it's playing off the Trojan horse. No, I get but, it. But you know. when you're talking about breeding and you <laughs> you label Although something there's a, a horse Trojan on Trojan condoms too, you know, pocket full of pocket full of Trojans, Wait, I think Prince said. Is that where Trojan condoms You can research that on your own time. Okay, I'm going to keep going on here. <laughs> so what is a Trojan trout? A Trojan trout is a lab-produced brookie. Um it, it's that's it, that they are made to carry not one but two copies of um, Y chromosomes that codes maleness. So they have no X chromosome to pass right. on. So to break that down, these lab-made Trojan brookies, they can spawn with the female wild female brook trout in the stream, but they'll never pass on the chromosomes to create more female brook trout. Uh, this sounds like it's going to work. Well, well, yeah, maybe. So the, the program has been going on since 2018. These Trojan brook trout have been implanted in several streams across the Vermejo Reserve. However, um, this actually all started way back in 2008 when fisheries biologist Dan Schill came up with this idea and started making uh, brookies at a hatchery in Idaho, I believe it was. Now, you said this is going to work. This hasn't been in practice long enough to determine if it will. But just to give you an idea, the New Mexico streams um, first had these Trojan brookies implanted in 2018. By the end of the second spawning season in 2020, 75% of the fish captured in Leandro Creek were male. And also 30% of the juveniles captured from test streams in the area were the male offspring of the YY Trojan brook trout. So the idea, right, is that this will eventually cause the brookie populations to just burn out because there won't be any females. So you say, will it work? I mean, here's the here's the thing. While this process takes much longer, it's like a long game deal, it could definitely be a better alternative to dealing with invasives with things like rotenone, right? A chemical, they've used that in Maine as an example to rid certain systems of smallmouth. The problem with, with chemically treating, of course, is that you risk killing the fish you're trying to save to get rid of the ones you don't. Yeah, but um, uh, you know, all, all good things take time, man. I, I'm actually, the, this story was on like the periphery. Of, like, I, I thought about taking this one. I, I didn't read all the way through yeah. it, but- this is one of like the first um, conservation solutions of this ilk where I've like heard and been like, oh, that actually sounds like pretty tenable. So it makes perfect sense. It's just how long does it take to play out? And here's a final note, and you're going to find this interesting because uh, I was blown away by this right here. Um, it turns out that east of the Mississippi, several states, including Tennessee and North Carolina, are also very interested in Trojan trout, ironically, to save their native brookies 
which are being overtaken in many watersheds by non-native rainbow trout. So we've stocked so many rainbows on the East Coast that they are actually breeding strongly enough in certain areas that little wild rainbows are overtaking our prized native brookies. So these states want these labs and hatcheries to start creating Trojan YY rainbows for us to put in these mountain trickles in North Carolina and West Virginia and stuff to get rid of the rainbows. Yeah, I'm genuinely excited about this, man. You hear this like, kind of story played out with like early, you know, I'm using quotes, wildlife management, you know, particularly like I was talking with somebody about this the other day, uh, like wildlife diplomacy. Like, mm. uh, like Roosevelt dropped all those elk down in New Zealand. You, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? It, it, it's, it's weird that it, coinciding with the ease of international travel, a lot of folks were like, you know what, uh, you know, it's going to be a great like gift to, uh, to give to this, this country that I'm hoping to build relations with an invasive species. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I think this is a really fascinating approach. The thing is, if you're looking at it on this very small scale, these small streams, these headwaters in the east and and these small streams, I mean, they're doing this in streams you could jump across, right? You know, like Pennsylvania blue line type of streams. Um, But like, is is this translatable to Asian carp? Yeah. To snakeheads? Would it eventually, I mean, now you're, once you jump into these big systems where you're trying to eradicate something in this huge watershed, Versus seeing how it works just in this one stream first, you know, is that viable? But um, I think it's a it's a very noteworthy and 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 cool study. Um, I I love the idea of it. I really do. Yeah, yeah, and it seems like a good way to like manage these really delicate ecosystems that are these blue lines and these like uh, headwaters. And I remember, yeah. you know. Now, on the East Coast, one thing that we don't often do is, you know, it's not like out here in Montana where, like, all the fish you're fishing for are wild. You know, the uh, on, on the East Coast, one of the – I mean, I never killed wild fish on the East Coast. No. Never. No. Um, but one of the few wild fish that I did kill was in a particularly good brook trout blue line that will remain nameless. I yeah. had fished it a couple times and, you know, it was one of those spots and I've told you about this place. You, you fish it like twice, three times, you know, a spring or summer. And otherwise you try and keep the pressure on it off it rather, but you could do like, you know, a bunch of like, I mean, you could catch all the brook trout you wanted out of there and just have a ball. And I caught a brown trout in there one time. You yeah. better believe, man. I pulled that thing up and popped its gills, and you know, I mean, I ate it. But the uh... yeah, I, I mean, the irony of all this is that every, so most of the things we love are theoretically invasive. There's brown trout down the street from you in Montana because somebody put them there. Mm-hmm. You know, so I always get a little bit of chuckle out of that when I when I see these things. Although in this case, we're, we're at least dealing with true natives, Rio Grande's. Our true natives, the brook trout out here, are true natives. Um, but you know, it's it's like this is an example of where planting ultimately was a bad deal. At the same time, you know, I'm sure there are other rivers in New Mexico that are loaded with rainbows and browns that people love, but they weren't there either. Somebody dumped them too. So it's always like, you know, a little like, haha, see? You are know, rainbows in battles. New Mexico? 
Or are they, are they like Absol- on the right absolutely. side of that water? No, no, no. I mean, like wild. I think so. Yeah, I don't. I I don't know that for sure. But I mean, they're wild throughout the Rockies, and there's Rockies in New Mexico, are there not? Yeah, yeah, but they're not wild on like this side of the Rockies because we're east of the Continental Divide here, right? Like, and I'm I'm. Listeners, I'm bad at geography. That's basically what I'm asking Joe about, who appears to be equally bad at geography. No, you are west of the divide in Bozeman, are you not? No. No? Listeners, well, again, whatever. Joe is also you, bad at you, geography. <laughs> I leave the East Coast, and I forget that not every river flows north to south. Yeah. So anyway. Um, but yeah, fascinating study. Really curious to see how that plays out in the long game. Please enter your password. You have one unheard message. You spot-burning son of a bitch. If you give away one more of my fishing holes by geotagging them on social media, I'm going to slash your tires. End of message. Delete. Press 7. Save. Deleted. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. All right, so I hate to do it, but we have to talk about something that we'd call um, like a major bummer, but... 
take heart that it's like being used to avoid major tragedy. Washington State, after careful science-based consideration, has imposed major restrictions on a uh, a particularly beloved fishery. Um, I'm going to read a real quick section uh, from the official press release put out by the WDFW. In an effort to meet management objectives and provide necessary protection for dwindling wild steelhead populations, the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife today announced a full closure to all sport fishing throughout the Washington coast and the Strait of Juan de Fuca. Uh, dude, I, I know like there's some like steelhead dude like just cringing in my pronunciation of that, so I accept. Well, it's it's either Fuca or Fuca or Fuca when you. Well, it's probably I was, not. Fucka. I was like, I, I was like, he's gonna say fucka. Do we have to bleep those? No, we'll let. Do him... we bleep that? <laughs> no, I was I think, just thinking. I think we're that. gonna let him roll. It's a proper um, noun. <laughs> anyway, the full closure will take effect Tuesday, March first. So this happened on what is what was that Tuesday? Oh, yes, yeah, because it yeah. says Tuesday, March first. I'm dumb. Uh, the closure follows the review of preliminary data that suggests the forecasted returns are likely coming back as low as thirty percent of what fishery managers expected, foreshadowing perhaps the lowest return ever recorded in some rivers. Based on historic return timing, most hatchery steelhead runs have ended, and the wild steelhead returns are more than one-third of the way complete. And, and this is like a this is an inception quote, a quote inside a quote. Throughout our conversations with anglers and the broader coastal community, we've been upfront about our commitment to designing fisheries that meet our conservation objectives, said Kelly Cunningham, WDFW uh, Fish Program Director. With this preliminary data in hand that now suggests coastal steelhead returns are significantly lower than we've expected, we need to take bold, swift actions for the future of these runs. Now, yeah. Now, this is tough, and there are multiple sides to what's going down here. Right away, people... Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, and I, I think we got to say, like, West Side Steelheader's heart goes out. But, I mean, if this is what it's going to take to build back... I'm sure there are some people who agree with this. The same thing has been suggested on the Striper Coast. Like, how about we just not fish for them for a few years? So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, so right, I feel so bad for you guys, but maybe drastic measures, me too. you know? Uh, right away, people are going to be disappointed, and this is going to hurt a bunch of guides who make their livelihood mm-hmm. pursuing these fish. Um, there is no doubt about that. But here's the thing. At least for now, it appears it, it, it's short-term, Right. Right. The forest through the trees, man. Um, the fact is steel have been declining for at least the last 70 years. A recent study titled Historical Records Reveal Changes to the Migration, Timing, and Abundance of Winter Steelhead in Olympic Peninsula Rivers, Washington State, USA, by John R. McMillan, Matthew R. Sloat, Martin Learman, and George Pess discovered as much as a 50% decrease of returning steelhead in the OP. The study yeah. gets into a lot of hard to swallow facts and uh, much of the outlook is, you know, at least on the current trajectory, grim. It's not good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So historically the runs used to begin in, and this is like a little background on, on all the, on all this. And this is something that I gleaned from the study, right? So historically the runs used to begin in November, but the runs have been getting progressively later. A lot of folks like don't even get a jump on steelhead fishing until, you know, uh, I think like January is when a lot of folks yeah. consider that season to be starting in earnest. 
Um, the authors of the aforementioned study hypothesize that this is not so much the fish as a whole, like simply delaying their return to freshwater or like shifting run timing. Uh, rather, what they think that we're witnessing is a shortened run, perhaps having lost the early returning steelhead in their entirety. So rather than yeah. like... Oh, it makes sense because in no migratory fishery, generally speaking, do all the fish come at one time. Like you get this wave and then this wave. And and so yeah. I get so what they're are, saying. Yeah, so if like, there are, you yeah. know, to break it down like real quick, if there are three waves, right? One starting in November, one starting in December, and one starting in, you know, January, February. They're saying that uh, the, the the first and second waves are just like not happening. Doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. And it's yep. not that all these fish have decided to move over to the later wave. It's that they no longer exist. Yep. Now, yep. there's a lot to back this up. A historical ledger the authors discovered detailed runs from 1948 to 1960 that were significantly larger than what some scientists even estimated. This has an impact on how we interpret the runs we experience today. So we're working with a new data set. Up until fairly recently, the steelhead runs on the Olympic Peninsula were, continued, were considered to be strong. However, with the new context provided by a larger, more complete data set, the level of decline has become pronounced. To put simply, there used to be far more steelhead than we thought, and we've lost a lot of them. Yeah. So anyway, all, all, all that's to say, while being like relatively recent in terms of, I guess, like the broad scope of a fisheries history, the steelhead have been sliding for longer than thought. Yeah. Um, now, to get a more like local boots on the ground take by someone who is intimately familiar with the OP and the steelhead fishery, I reached out to my buddy uh, Lee Geist. Lee's a lifelong resident of the OP, as well as a member of this year's Coastal Steelhead Advisory Committee. And I, yeah, you know, I, I was, I was like, "Hey, man, could, do me a favor, give me a quote." And he said, "The OP has." If you have a moment where you're not depressed, please give me a call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. If you if you want to come down from the roof, <laughs> yeah. He said the OP has been in steep decline, and it's no secret. I think the way we determine in-season run size is not very reliable. So the slightest hint of being under escapement, and uh, folks, for those who don't know, escapement is the number of salmon or steelhead or other anadromous fish uh, that gets through the gauntlet of anglers, commercial mm -hmm. fishermen, and predators to reach spawning grounds. So when Lee says under escapement, he's saying under objective spawning numbers, in essence. Um, anyway, he says that I think the way that we determine in-season run size is not very reliable, so the slightest hint of being under escapement requires heavy-handed moves by the agency. I want yeah. to be fishing badly, but it's comforting to know that those fish will be unmolested in March for the first time in a long time. And that's a big deal. Right. Um, yes. I, and this is coming back to me. That's the end of Lee's quote. Uh, I know we all like to blame like the commercial boogeyman, but, and we talked about this in our Madison river conversation a while back, uh, pressure from recreational anglers in the guide community has a real impact. We'd like to yeah. think that like catch and release fishing is this harmless way to like, I don't know, like essentially play with a fish. But once it gets beyond a certain scale or like a, you know, a, a Gladwell tipping point, it changes fish's patterns and behaviors, including when it comes time to spawn. Yep. Anyhow, yep. Lee, thank you for the quote. Uh, Joe, your thoughts. 
Well, what you said is is correct. Um, you know, if you go back a few decades, uh, we, we can talk about um, West Side Steel, compare that to East Coast Stripers for the guys out here. The bottom line is there were not as many people out recreationally fishing for those fish. Like, in all fisheries, there has been um, an uptick in in pressure. I don't I don't care what it is. That's the age we live in. It's a social media thing. It's an internet thing, you know. So when you you know even to compare the two again, even though we're talking about these steelhead running these massive rivers, super big rivers, long rivers, right? They're still in this confined space, which makes them vulnerable, right? They're gonna use certain passages to move up. Guys, figure that out. Um, you know, versus striper in the ocean. But even then, you look at something like spawning season here. Well, you know, if there's 3,000 boats in Raritan Bay on a Saturday where they're all spawning mm. versus 200 boats 30 years ago or 100 boats 30 years ago, shit, yeah. Like, to, for anybody to say that, um, you know, recreational fishing for, for certain things um, is, is, like, is no longer a factor. In other words, there's always been this attitude of like, Commercial, 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 like recreational guys, the government could let us do whatever we want and it's never going to have an impact. No, that's not true. Like that's just, you know, false, false thinking. Um, There are instances where I agree more or less, like um, tuna is an example. I don't, I don't think there's enough people with the means to go tuna fishing uh, with the right boat and the amount of money uh, for that to make much of, uh, you know, as much of an impact as big commercial operations. So it, it, it varies, um, you know, little, little by little, depending on the, what we're talking about. But I mean, once those steelhead get in a river, it's just another trout in the stream. So you think about your favorite trout stream, forget about a migratory run. If that got pounded, you know, over and over again, and people were, were taking fish and harassing fish, like you said, any fishery will adapt to that pressure and the fish will behave differently. Um, it, it, it kind of, you know, I, I'm, I won't call him out by name, but we recently got a letter from a listener about his struggles on the salmon river in Pulaski. That's East side steel, right? Mm. Manufactured fishery, dude, having good fishing there is harder than it was 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. I don't care what anybody says. And that's some of that is because of some sort of pitfalls with, with runs and year classes, but okay, all those fish are still there. You can't tell me they're not adapting to pressure. They are getting harder to catch yeah. than they used to be. So um, I think as painful as this is now, I would bet the bulk of the devoted West Side Steel crew is like, you know, like Lee said, good. Give them a friggin' break for one season through March to just, you know, be completely left alone, unmolested, you know, no fighting. Uh, of course, I, I'm, I'm also I'm not an expert, but I'm pretty sure the further these fish get up the system, the further away they get from the coast. They've been through dams and an onslaught of this and that. And the other thing, you know, you catch them 7,500 miles up the system. Now you're you're also fighting a fish that's been through a lot of shit. So it's very reasonable to say that that fish might not have as good of a chance to survive or or get to where it needs to to spawn. So ultimately, um, I, I do think this is a good thing, despite it being a bummer right now. If I was out there, I would be an advocate for this. I would say, good, you know, let's just do it. Yeah. So anyway, um, we're going to hear what Phil has to say, what what uh, conservation message uh, he, he was more into this week. Since, uh, you know, nobody can 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 mount their uh, their steelhead on the West Coast. Uh, how about some tips on uh, the best way to get that seven inch native brookie from the uh, Tenkara rod? to a plaque over your mantle. 
So we're going to hear from Phil, and then we're going to go uh, right to the Bent Helpline and uh, give you some thoughts on that. I normally edit the show at home, but today I'm working from the office directly across from Hayden Samick, who not only tried to write my own fish news judgment jokes, but tried to declare himself the winner. Hayden, why do you deserve to win fish news this week? Well, Phil, because I'm bigger than you. And the winner this week is Hayden Samick. What are you laughing at, Martini? You're not an idiot. Huh? You're not a damn loony now, boy. You're a fisherman. What's your emergency? Okay, so today on the Bent Helpline, um, we have a question from Bradley Dalton. Uh, now, I'm not sure if Brad was just interested in what we thought or he meant to uh, have this as a submission, but hey, Brad, if you're listening, uh, here's your answer, man. Uh, so his question was, guys, I'm pretty much a want-to-be angler and have never had a fish mounted, but since my understanding is that all fish mounts are plastic anyway... Why the heck would someone want a plastic bath toy stuck on the wall? I sure wouldn't want to stare at a plastic deer face, but would love a monster buck in the man cave. These pictures are from Anderson University in South Carolina when I went to college, and these are real fish. Bradley has attached uh, three images of, of skin mounts. Old fish, but real fish. If they used to do it this way, why not now? Thanks, Brad Dalton. Uh, South Carolina. So Brad, Brad, <laughs> Brad, Brad. There's, there's a yeah. Okay, <laughs> go ahead. So, what are you gonna say? <laughs> well, we, you know, to be honest, we I, I started writing him back. In fact, I finished writing him back, and then realized that uh, the link to taxidermy would make this uh, ideal for our makers themed uh, bent podcast we're having this what? week. Well, not well. Not only would it do that, I'll, I'll add to that that uh, if we if we uh, as we press on with the makers deal, there are there is a a skin mount taxidermist out there that I absolutely want to have on that segment. Mm. So this is a good sort of lead into what we would talk about there. But I think there's no other way to start an answer to Brad other than uh, Brad is extremely wrong on many counts. I'm not being rude. I'm just being honest. <laughs> First of all, like to call uh, replica taxidermy bathtub toy plastic is in, uh, extremely false, and also to say that to hint that nobody does skin mounts anymore is also very false. There are so many different options these days if you want to fish on your wall, and in the room I'm sitting in, I have all of them, so I can speak to this. Okay, so the way that I want to answer this, Joe, is I want to do like you have a soft spot for skin mounts. Yes, I do. I do. But but like like, it, like not it, like to the exclusion of other things. But you like them. I do. Yes. Now I don't dislike skin mounts, but I am a a, a proponent of the fiberglass mounts, and we'll, and we'll and we'll get to that uh, in a minute. So why don't you start off talking about the skin mounts, and then I'll pick it up with the fiberglass replicas? What do you think? Yeah, I mean that that's well, I. I yeah, but I can't do that exclusively because it's not a like you're the replica guy and I'm the skin mount guy. It's it's totally case by case. And I am certainly a huge fan of replica mounts. That's mostly what I have. But I think um it, first of all they're fiberglass, not plastic. That's neither here nor there. The the bad reputation that replica mounts get, right? Is from the fact that 
you can get them from a bunch of different sources. And I am here to tell you, if you catch a fish, or for that matter, shoot a shoot an animal, a deer, elk, whatever, and like you really want that thing on your wall, that is not the time to pinch pennies. Like there is no oh, such yeah. thing as budget taxidermy. I don't care whether it's skin or replica or what. So yeah, I mean, just to use, um, I, I'm looking right now. The first bass, striped bass, I ever caught that was that was broke forty pounds. I had a replica mount made. I had that made by a small time operator in Philadelphia who was known throughout the area for his detailed paintwork. So even though it was a replica, right? His paintwork is phenomenal. But I, can <laughs> I, love also... I, I love how I teed you up to talk about skin mounts, and instead you've just like totally trodden over all the replica uh, but, arguments uh, but, I'm but, about to make. <laughs> but I'm getting I well, that's too bad. Okay, you let me okay, speak okay. first. This is the uh, risk you always take. mistake. Always but mistake. I but I can't I can't <laughs> talk skin without without explaining this. Uh -huh. So um, you know, it's it's a it's a beautiful replica mount. Likewise, you catch a 40-pound bass and you only want to spend a couple hundred bucks, you can get a mount out of Florida. There are, are like King Sailfish mounts, Gray's Taxidermy. They make exquisite replica mounts. There are clearinghouses that will knock out a 40-pound striper for you for not very much money, and it is going to look like dog shit. Like the paint job is not going to be good. It's, it's going to look like shit. Um, so you, well, as with everything, skin or not, you have to pick who you're working with, and the more you pay, the more you're going to like it. Uh, for the most part. Um, but to look at something like a 40-pound striper as an example, one 40-pound striper looks like the next 40-pound striper, looks like the next one, like the next one, like the next one. There is not a whole lot of unique um, characteristics of that fish. So therefore, if that's the case, you're talking about a dolphin you caught on vacation or a sailfish or a striper, um, huge proponent, I mean, if you want to, of, of letting you know the sailfish go or even if you take the mahi home to eat, there's no reason you can't have your fish tacos but need to save that for a skin mount. Now, likewise, there have been instances where I just felt skin was the, the option I would be happier with in the long run. Prime example, I have a silver salmon here on my wall. I'm not going to get into the whole story because it's very long, but there was a very specific reason why I chose to have that fish mounted. It, it was kind of like a... A hell week, and that was the closer after a lot of hard work. It's a particularly big fish, and I caught it in Ninilshik, Alaska. And I couldn't get my head around the idea of having some dude in Florida who may or may not have ever seen or held a silver salmon um, painting up a silver salmon for me. So in that instance, uh, I had a skin mount made, and I had it made at a taxidermist in Ninilshik. I paid a shitload of money for it. But that was one where I'm like, I want the real fish there. I want the skin from the salmon that I caught on my wall. So uh, I am certainly not opposed to skin mount taxidermy. But for me, there has to be, I think, the right reason. Like I know, I know guys in the striper world who don't kill any stripers. But if they catch their 50 or 60 pound dream fish, A, there might not be the right mold for that out there. It's like they would sacrifice that one that they've been trying for for so long to have the real skin on their wall. So it's it's totally case by case. Right. Okay. So to bring it back to the question, people do, in fact, still skin mount fish. Um, now, his question about why you would want a, uh, a, a plastic bath toy, as he describes it, Bro, you just haven't seen good ones, I guess. I, I I don't I don't really know what to tell you, but 
so here's the reality like those replica mounts. A replica mount is a fiberglass mold of a certain fish. And they come in uh they can come in size. I believe you can custom order um like a bunch of sides because you take those measurements, you take the length and the girth. Yeah, you, you take you take length and girth, and if anybody's thinking about doing this, shoot tons of video, tons of pictures, like do a video pan. The more detail they have, the right. better. For the most part, these days, a fish will already have sacrificed its life to make the mold that you need. However, if you did catch something that's like a world record or you can also, you know, send that in to be molded. Sometimes they'll even cut you a break because now the the outfit is now gaining a mold from your fish. So on the right. rare occasion, it can be completely custom for the most part. Um, you know, no fish has to die. There's a mold already there. One right. already sacrificed itself. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So the deal here is that, as Joe was alluding to, man, you can take photographs of the fish that you wish to have on your wall, and then you can release that fish. Mm-hmm. Um, you send them in the pictures, they look at it, uh, they, they paint the fish in the exact same way. The good places do. That's what yeah, separates yeah, the difference. Yeah. 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 Like they'll, they'll go in with an, like an airbrush and they'll do it specifically. You're not just saying like, I want a striper of this size. And they're going like, great. We have three of them on the shelf here and they're sending you one exactly. that does not have the same markings. They're going through with all the care of how a taxidermist would paint a skin mounted fish anyway. You know, because that's the other thing. When you get a skin-mounted fish, it's not like it's not like mounting like a deer or a turkey, where like the fur or the plumage retains its color. the 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 skin just becomes, uh, you know, like gray. You know, what I mean, it just it just becomes whatever, like you know, detailless color. Um, you know, a a a piece of fish skin turns into in the taxidermy process, and they have to paint it anyway. Really what you're paying for is like, uh, I guess the attention to detail in like the scale articulation, but by the time they put the finish on it, that allows that thing to stay in like uh, in a stable form, they've lacquered over those scales anyway. It's not like you can get your finger under there. Yeah. Well, and and I would, I would venture to guess, I sort of know, but I'd love to talk to an expert skin mounted taxidermy has come a long way. Like, so I collect old skin mounts I find at flea mm-hmm. markets and stuff. And as as uh, Brad pointed out, you see these old ones, they look like trash. Well, why is that? They didn't have the technology back in the day to get all the oil out of the head and out of that fish. And over time, it will degrade. Mm-hmm. I think that's gotten a lot better uh, with, with good skin mount guys. Most of the time, they never use the fish's real head. So the yep. skin is real. Often the fins, like the pec fins and things, are, are uh, plastic and added later. And they use a head so that 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 lasts a lot longer. That was the case with my salmon. Still looks great all these years later. I got a walleye over here. Its head is like dripping onto my floor. Right, right. You know? And so, and the other thing with it too, is that when you send a fish to the taxidermist, much uh, much to the, uh, the, the dismay of the breeze, you do not get that fish back. Like, no, you, you don't, don't get to you, eat it. No. You don't, you don't get to eat it. So really, when, when, you, when you take everything into account, you're basically killing a fish for no significant gain. And oftentimes, the fish that you want to kill is like a good breeding fish. Basically, uh, I don't know if folks know this, but I'm pretty sure it's whales and humans are the only things that live beyond their like reproductive capabilities, right? So any large fish that you're killing 
probably has the potential to be one of the best breeders in that in that like you know stock of fish so yeah with a lot of things with a lot of things not not all but, but you but you're right but you're right i yeah. will throw anyhow the, I will, yeah okay good no well, go ahead. Wait, go ahead. well i was gonna say that um the other thing that you like run into is like tarpon right tarpon famously are not a good fish to eat in fact like there's that i don't know if it's like a rumor or like an actual thing where they tried to make cat food out of them in the 50s but even the cats wouldn't eat them yeah i think it's urban legend but i've heard that yeah um so it's like just why do it man there's just like no point in it and what the other thing is you're gonna have something that like retains its shape and structure like forever i've i'm not aware of any instance where like a fiberglass fish replica has uh, turned to shit no I they won't they very will aware of yeah. a million skin mounts that have done exactly that and I'll throw one more out before we we get off of this. Actually, uh, I told you I have a, a mixed media in terms of fish on my wall here. <laughs> I have become the biggest freaking proponent of having your fish wood carved. Now, the trick to mm. this, though, is commissioning a really exceptional carver. Because if the guy is not, like, top-notch, then they can look more like bath toys than the replica. Um, but Rich Metzger, shout out to him. Uh, he's he's local, Percasey, Pennsylvania. He'd be another great guy to have on as a maker. Um, he has done two fish for me, a snakehead and a tiger trout. And it's not cheap. But like we said, if you want it done right, it's not going to be cheap. The beauty of wood carving, if, if, if the guy is really good, um, it's a one of a kind. So if you order a 40-pound striped bass from a replica house, you are getting the same shape, size fish same orientation as a million other people that caught a 40 pound striped bass you get your trout or largemouth or whatever wood carved you can have that sucker facing down up sideways tail moving body half bent anything you want it is the ultimate customization of yeah. a mount and rich is so yeah. good he actually carved a largemouth that was on the cover of field and stream for us back in the day that's uh, that's that's my deal like i think that's even better than replica I, I think that might be what I opt for next time, uh, should the finances allow it. So, Brad, in order to, uh, to to quickly summate our answer, number one, you can still get a, a, a skin fish mount. Number two, uh, you are not correct in your assessment of quality replica mounts, man. They're good. The fish doesn't have to die. You're going to have yep. it for longer and you know, you'll probably be extremely happy with it. Should you choose to go that route in the future? And finally, Joe recommendation for uh wood carvers. That is a, uh, I think that's a really solid way to go, man. Yes, it is. Uh, like I said, though, you got to do your research and find the right mm -hmm. guy. Um, the guy I used, man, some of his work, they look more realistic than the skin and fiberglass mounts I have. Mm -hmm. uh, hey, if you've got a question for the Bent Helpline we can help you answer, do please send that to bent at the and um, maybe we'll uh, rap about your problems and concerns right here on the Bent Helpline. So that's it for this week. Hopefully we've inspired you to get out and make something whether that's a sandwich, mm. a memory, or a payment on your student loans. 
No, man, rebel. No payments on student <laughs> loans. Uh, <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. You'll get in financial trouble. I'm not. Don't come to me for financial advice. Uh, thanks again to Ryan Ebert for joining us. And don't forget, we love it when you tell us which fishy dive bars we should join you at. So keep those bar nominations, sale bin items, awkward photos, questions, and whatever else you want to send coming to bent at thebeadeater.com. Yeah, keep using those Degenerate Angler and Bent podcast hashtags, especially if you post something that you made, whether that was in a fine craftsman shop setting or while completely intoxicated in the cheapest motel room on the river. Yes, and please don't inundate us with every fly you've ever tied. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.